Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So let me ask you a question. How have you been spending your time during this social isolation or the social quarantine during COVID-19? I've been amused at how many different Emails and texts have been sent to me about how people are spending their time and what the challenges are that we're facing. Somebody sent me a text of a man being asked by a voice off camera, you're going to be quarantined. You have two options. Option A, you can be with your wife and child in a house. Option B, and the man cuts in and says, option B, option B, definitely option B. (laughs) It's tough. Suddenly we're together, and we're together a lot of the time. Or somebody just this week sent me the video of a woman in a closet. It's all dark. She has a camera beneath her face, and so you can see some outlines, and she's whispering. And she's saying, I can't take it anymore out there. I can't do this any longer. She talked about her husband and the fact that he was home all the time, and she said, I want a man in my life. I just don't want a man in my house. (laughs) So how are you spending your time? I was really horrified to read a piece in a news magazine called The Week about the ship, the cruise ship, that was quarantined up off the coast of San Francisco and Oakland. And the people who were confined to their cabins, including those who were confined to those inner cabins, very small cabins, no outside light, no contact with the outside world, a family of eight with six small children day after day in that cabin. Can you even begin to imagine? So let me ask you, how are you spending your time during this time of social isolation? It's it's really a rather confusing experience, isn't it? Somebody else sent me some, some, some rules, some rules to follow. There was quite a long list of them. I'm only going to read a few of them. But these rules kind of underline why it is that this time is so hard and so confusing. So I'll read eight of them. Number one, basically you can't leave the house for any reason, but if you have to, then you can. (laughs) Number two, masks are useless, but maybe you have to wear one. It can save you. It is useless, but it is maybe mandatory as well. (laughs) Number three, stores are closed, except those that are open. Number four, gloves won't help, but they can still help. Number five, there's no shortage of groceries in the supermarket, but there are many things missing when you go there in the evening, but not in the morning sometimes. Number six, the virus has no effect on children except those it affects. (laughs) Number seven, animals are not affected, but there's still a cat that tested positive in Belgium in February when no one had been tested, plus a few tigers here and there. And finally, number eight, you will have many symptoms when you are sick, But you can also get sick without symptoms, have symptoms without being sick, or be contagious without having symptoms. (laughs) And it goes on from there. 
all to underline the reality of the confusing, difficult time in which we're living. Time of social distancing, emotional isolation many times, and quarantine. So I want to ask you, how are you spending your time? That question, how are you spending your time, isn't a question just connected to how we're living during this time. It's actually a question Jesus was concerned about. Not concerned about in a time of social isolation. He was concerned about it in reference to his return. And the question of how people would spend their time, how his followers would spend their time between when he spoke the words and his return. So this this morning we're going to go to Luke 19, Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter. And we're going to consider a parable. A parable, it seems to me, that suggests that when it comes to his return, Jesus is less concerned about how much time will pass and more concerned about how we will spend that time. Luke 19. We're going to look at a parable that sounds very familiar. It sounds familiar because it's very similar to a parable told over in Matthew 25, a parable that we have studied together and actually on more than one occasion. Matthew 25, the parable is told, and the point of the parable is how to prepare for the coming of Christ. How to prepare. Here in Luke's Gospel, It seems that the focus is more on how people spend their time between the time Jesus speaks the word and his return. Now, there are similarities between both parables. Let's be clear about that. In both parables, there's a man who's going away on a long journey. There's the fact that he gives his his treasures, his possessions to some of his servants. The fact that the implication is they will be ready or not as the case may be, for his return based on what they do with the treasures and talents that they've been given. There are similarities between both parables. But there are some differences as well. And one of the differences is here in Luke's gospel, there seems to be a greater emphasis on how we spend the time. So I want to first of all read one verse, verse 11, because it helps set the context for exactly why it was that Jesus told the parable in the first place. So Luke 19, 11 says this. While they were listening to this, they're just coming away from Jesus' experience with Zacchaeus and the healing of blind Bartimaeus. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The reason he's telling them the parable is they're thinking the kingdom is just about to appear. We're right on the cusp. Now, to set that in the context of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been on a long, a very long journey. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he begins this journey to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51 tells us that as his time to depart the earth and return to the Father neared, he turned his face toward Jerusalem, and he predicted for the first time that he would die. Now, that was in Luke 9, 51. We're in Luke 19, 11. 
That's 10 chapters of a journey that Jesus has been on journeying toward Jerusalem and his destiny or his fate in Jerusalem. It's been an important journey. Many things have happened on the way that are deeply important for the mission in which he is engaged. One of the key things that has happened has been this repeating theme that he is going to die. It started when he first turned his face toward Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to reject me. I'm going to die. On the way, he tells them a second time in Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And now just before we come to this parable, by not many verses, for the third time he goes back to it and says, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. The religious leaders are going to reject me. In other words, they're going to take an attitude, a posture that says, we don't want this man to be our king. We don't want that. Now, the other thing that's been happening on this journey to Jerusalem is that the anticipation has been building. It's been building as they move toward Jerusalem. His followers are listening to his teaching, watching his actions, hearing his words, and their anticipation is rising. When we get to Jerusalem, the kingdom will be established. So that's the climate. That's the environment. That's what's happening. But Luke 11 tells us, Jesus, recognizing that, says, I want to tell you a parable. Because I realize that some of you think the kingdom of God is almost here. I want to tell you a parable to deal with that. He knows it's not almost there. And he wants to talk to them about how to spend the time that will pass until the kingdom of God does arrive. So now let's read the full parable. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to start with verse 11, and then we're going to read it straight through. Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. 
But as for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Wow, that's brutal. A brutal ending to the story. And yet, as we read it, you no doubt recognize the similarities with the parable over in Matthew's gospel. There are similarities, but there are also some key differences. I want to, to share with you two thoughts, one by way of quote, about the differences between this parable and the one in Matthew's gospel. The first thought comes from that venerable old scholar from Scotland, William Barclay. What Barclay says here I found was echoed by many scholars in their treatment of this passage, but Barclay said it particularly clearly. So I want to read you his words. He writes, This is unique among the parables of Jesus because it is the only one whose story is in part based on an actual historical event. It tells about a king who went away to receive a kingdom and whose subjects did their best to stop him from receiving it. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he left his kingdom divided between Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Archelaus. That division had to be ratified by the Romans, who were the overlords of Palestine, before it became effective. Archelaus, to whom Judea had been left, went to Rome to persuade Augustus to allow him to enter into his inheritance. Whereupon, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 men to Rome to inform Augustus that they did not wish to have him as king. In point of fact, Augustus confirmed him in his inheritance, though without the actual title of king. Anyone in Judea, writes Barclay, on hearing the parable, would immediately remember the historical circumstances on which it is based. And that probably explains why Jesus ended the story in such a brutal manner. Because that would have been part and parcel for people who were trying to reject the authority Rome imposed upon them. So as Jesus tells this story, people are nodding their heads. They may not be saying it, but they're thinking, I remember, I know where you got that story, Jesus. That happened to us. So that's one piece. But the second piece comes from another commentary that says maybe the key difference between Matthew's parable and Luke's parable is that in Luke's parable, the man who leaves on a long journey is specifically going to be initiated and confirmed into his kingdom while the people back home don't want him. That's Luke, not Matthew. In other words, we don't want this man to be our king. It has parallels to what Jesus is living Remember that sense of anticipation we were talking about, that, about that's building and building and building as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem to the point where they're saying, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. That anticipation is going to reach its zenith in just a couple of days here. In fact, in the very next passage of Luke, in something known as the triumphal entry. When that triumphal entry unfolds, people are certain the kingdom has arrived. 
But if they've been listening to Jesus, if they've been paying attention to his words, they'll remember that cautionary parable told to caution them there's going to be time between now and the full inauguration of the kingdom. And the implied question is, the one we began with, how are you going to spend that time? So a couple of weeks ago together, we talked about something called eschatological caffeine. I've heard from you, friends, and I've heard from some that related to that and from some of you who weren't very happy with that. We want to know that the coming is here. We want to know what to do right now if the coming is immediate, if it is about to happen, if this that we're experiencing in the world right now is portending the end, what do we do? In other words, how do we spend this time right now? Now, I'll have to admit Nature feels like it's in revolt. Just earlier this week, as you well know, back in the southeastern part of our country, friends in Tennessee felt like a giant weed whacker had come and mowed down everything in its path. Hundreds of homes affected, lives altered, lives ended. And we have what we're facing, this microscopic organism called COVID-19, that is also reaping a path of wreaking havoc among us. And we have an economy that is rising and plunging downward again. We have divisions, political, racial, and otherwise, that are deepening and dividing not only our country, but our world. No wonder people are asking, is this it? Is this the end? I get it. I understand the questions, but I'm particularly concerned about and interested in what Jesus says, because there's a statement he makes right near the beginning of the parable that sets the stage for everything else. I want to go back and read it again. It's in Luke 19, 13. This is what he says. This man is going into a far country to be appointed king. He calls his ten servants, verse 13. So he called his ten servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Put this money to work until I come back. In other words, this is how you are to spend your time. The old King James Version rendered that that phrase in that verse, Occupy till I come. New American Standard Bible says, Do business until I come. So that's how Jesus wants us to spend the time. Whether the coming is immediate or delayed, do business. Just do business until I come. So what does that mean? Particularly here in the context of Luke's gospel, what does that mean? Well, you may remember all the way back in Luke 2, we first encounter this concept of doing business 
It comes at a time when Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, is at the temple, on the temple grounds. He's having conversations with the teachers of the law. His parents have lost him. When they finally find him, his mother rebukes him and says, Jesus, why have you treated us this way? She's not saying we lost you, but she's saying, why did you treat us this way? And Jesus responds by saying, why did you look for me? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, some versions translate that. Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? It's interesting in the original because the word business and the word house do not appear. In fact, there's not a word there. It's a supplied word by the translator so that in English the sentence will make sense. What he's really just saying is, don't you know that I must be about my father's? Father's what? Well, the sense in the original is I must be about my father's things. In his house. Doing his bidding. Caring for his business. From the very early stage of Jesus' life, that's what he was about, doing the Father's business. So what does that mean here in the context of Luke's gospel? A mere perusal of the gospel helps us understand. In Luke chapter 3, doing the Father's business means you listen to the preaching of repentance of John. You further the interest of the kingdom. Luke 4, you respond to temptation in your life, which will come with Scripture and with submission to the will of God. Also in Luke 4, you push the boundaries of the kingdom back, as Jesus did in the Nazareth synagogue, to welcome others and to draw them in. In other words, you comfort the afflicted, but you afflict the comfortable. That's doing the Father's business. You keep looking in Luke 5. You respond to the invitation of Jesus. Follow me. And you begin a lifelong, life-changing discipleship journey with him. Luke 6. You give, you forgive, you don't judge. Also in Luke 6, you love your enemies. Also in Luke 6, you build your house on the solid rock. All of those are doing the business of Jesus. Luke 8, the parable of the sower, you make certain that your heart is the fertile soil so that when the seed of the kingdom is planted in it, it will grow and it will become fruitful. It will bear fruit. That's doing the Father's business in Luke. Luke 9, you're part of the 12 sent out on a missionary journey to carry the news of the kingdom to all the other helpless hamlets that need it. What about Luke 10? If you're doing the business of the kingdom in Luke 10, you join someone we know as the Good Samaritan. You do something for your neighbor who needs help, including during this time. You're willing to go at risk to yourself, at cost to yourself, to help someone else. That's doing the Father's business. Or what about at the end of Luke 10? The end of Luke 10, we're, we're at the home of Mary and Martha. If you're doing the Father's business, you're seated at the feet of Jesus. 
listening to his life-changing teaching as it plants itself in you and changes your life. What about Luke 15? One of my favorite chapters, certainly in Luke's gospel, but truly in all of Scripture. Luke 15, the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. If you're doing the Father's business, it means that you will be criticized as Jesus was for hanging out with sinners, for seeking sinners, for welcoming sinners when they come home. That's doing the Father's business. Then what about Luke 18, parable of the persistent widow, which Jesus tells specifically in the context of waiting for his return. The meaning of which is the way you spend your time between now and my return is living a life of consistent prayer. All those are doing the Father's business. And we've honestly just done a mere perusal of a few chapters and incidents in the gospel. And then we come to Luke 19. We come to the instructions given by the master. Not just the master in the parable, but our master. Who says, do business until I come. Just do my business. And as we consider it in the Gospel of Luke, we suddenly realize that doing the Master's business is all-encompassing. It affects every part of our lives, our relationships, our hearts, our service, our devotion. In other words, it means that we are engaged in a lifelong, life-changing, discipleship journey with Jesus. That's doing his business. And that's what he says here in this parable. To those who expected that the kingdom was just around the corner, he says, occupy till I come. Do business until I return. And so the question, how are you spending your time? How are you spending your time during this time of social isolation? Two or three weeks ago, just as as all of this was getting started, I got an email from Lonnie Meloshenko. Many of you will know Lonnie, former speaker, director of Voice of Prophecy. Got an email from Lonnie that was very enlightening. Lonnie, I appreciated you sending this my way. Because he had drawn together some things from different sources that indicated how people have spent similar times to what we're facing right now. I want to read to you some of the things that Lonnie shared. Do you know, I read, that during the Great Plague of London, the last great out plague of bubonic plague in England, John Milton and his family fled the city to a secluded cottage. Quarantine, though they didn't use that word. And within those walls, he completed Paradise Lost and was inspired to write its sequel, Paradise Regained. Can you imagine? Did you know that it was likely during an earlier part of that time of bubonic plague that Shakespeare used his time in quarantine to write some plays? King Lear, Macbeth, Anthony and Cleopatra. As one website says, 
Just a few classic plays that change theater forever. No big deal. Or what about John Bunyan? When Bunyan was in prison, another kind of social quarantine, he took advantage of the time and of the fact that he had his Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs with him to write Grace Abounding and to begin work on a little book called Pilgrim's Progress. And then there's Sir Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was in his early 20s when the Great Plague of London hit. He wasn't a sir yet. He was just another college student at Trinity College, Cambridge. It would be another 200 years before scientists discovered the bacteria that causes plague. But even without exactly knowing why, folks back then still practiced some of the same things we do to avoid illness. In 1665, it was a version of social distancing. Cambridge sent students home to continue their studies. For Newton, that meant Woolsthorpe Manor, the family estate about 60 miles northwest of Cambridge. Without his professors to guide him, Newton apparently thrived. The year plus he spent away was later referred to as his Annus Mirabilis, the year of wonders. First, he continued work on mathematical problems he had begun at Cambridge. The papers he wrote on this became early calculus. Next, he acquired a few prisms and experimented with them in his bedroom, even going so far as to bore a hole in his shutters so only a small beam of light could come through. From this sprung his theories on optics. And right outside his window at Woolsthorpe, there was an apple tree, that apple tree. The story of how Newton sat under the tree, was bonked on the head by an apple, and suddenly understood the theories of gravity and motion is largely apocryphal. But according to his assistant, John Conduit, there's an element of truth in it. In London, a quarter of the population would die of plague from 1665 to 1666. It was one of the last major outbreaks in the 400 years that the Black Death ravaged Europe. Newton returned to Cambridge in 1667, theories in hand. Within six months, he was made a fellow. Two years later, a professor. So there you go. Doing business, if you will. And then finally, in Lonnie's email, what about the Apostle Paul? You remember that Paul wrote part of the New Testament while under house arrest? We know them as the prison epistles, written during the time of his house arrest in Rome, approximately between 60 and 62 AD. They include Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Together, they comprise four of the New Testament's 27 books and 15 of its 260 chapters. What was Paul doing? He was occupying doing the master's bidding. All this during times just like the ones we are experiencing. So I ask you, how are you spending your time? Maybe more importantly, I ask you, how are you spending your time, regardless of what we're going through right now, how are you spending your time in light of the coming of Christ? Because the truth of the parable is, the Master returned. 
He returned and he called his servants to account. In the same way, our master will return. And we too will be called to give account. And based on what Jesus says in this parable, here's what I think he wants. He wants to tell us, I'm going to return and I'm going to ask you, how did you spend your time? And he tells us, let me give you the answer that I want to hear. Here's what I want to hear you say, says Jesus, on that day. When I ask, how did you spend your time? I hope you say, Master, I spent the time just doing business. Just doing business. Just doing the business of the kingdom.